Welcome to the 357th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today is our researchers roundtable with Renu Singh, John Schaefer, and Lucia Vitali. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, October 13th, 2021, there are 4,864,714 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, A Great Loss, Tributes Pour In for Pioneering Papua New Guinea, a Female Doctor Who Died from COVID. This was written by Leanne Jorari and appeared September 27th, 2021 in The Guardian. Tributes have poured in for a doctor in Papua New Guinea's Western province who died last week in the country's first death of a healthcare worker from COVID-19 confirmed by the government. Dr. Naomi Corey Pomat, 60, the director for curative health services at the Western Provincial Health Authority, was medevaced to Port Mosby after contracting the virus and died on the 19th of September, 2021. Her son, Dr. David Pomat, told The Guardian, Dr. Naomi Pomat was my mother, and we loved her very dearly, a wonderful, loving, humble, and selfless woman who literally gave her life to serving her people despite all odds. Well wishes have poured in over social media with friends and family who knew her, remembering her life and her dedication to the people of Western Province. Western Province Health Authority said she was the first female doctor from the province and the first female specialist medical officer in the province working as a pediatrician. Later, she became the director of the Curative Health Service. She set the standard and a challenge that will motivate the young people, the Western Province Health Authority wrote in its announcement on Facebook. It's a huge vacuum late Dr. N. Pomat left. In the Papua New Guinea medical fraternity, it's a great loss. Thank you for serving Papua New Guinea and Western Province with distinction, they wrote. In another tribute, Parents of a young child Pomat helped care for wrote, in some of the most trying months of our lives, she was there offering guidance and encouragement. She was soft-spoken and gentle, yet unmovable in her determination to honor God and to love people. The world was a better place with her in it. Acting Prime Minister Soroy Eo said Pomat was unvaccinated and urged all medical practitioners to get vaccinated to protect themselves. It is believed that other health workers from Papua New Guinea have died from COVID-19, but this is the first death of a doctor that the government has announced it believes has been due to the virus. Papua New Guinea is grappling with a third wave of COVID-19 and Western Province 
has been named as a hotspot with the Delta variant spreading rapidly in the province. The country has officially recorded 19,000 cases and 225 deaths from COVID-19 during the pandemic, but the real numbers are thought to be far higher, skewed by incredibly low testing rates. Deputy Controller of the National Pandemic Response, Dr. Dayoni Isaram, announced last week that the hospital in Deru, the capital of Western Province, had reported 89 positive cases over two weeks. Other provinces being closely monitored due to the increase in positive cases include Eastern Highlands, West Sepik, Inga, and the National Capital District. The Eastern Highlands Administrator, John Gimaseve, said the decision was made in the interest of people to cancel a recent concert. In the first two weeks of September alone, 24 new cases and four deaths were recorded in the hospital, he said. That is very alarming and serious for our people. To further complicate the situation, our population in general are not adhering to the new normal measures, he said. Even the vaccine uptake among our frontline population in the province at 33% is risky. The huge number of unvaccinated population accessing the show places a greater risk and will culminate in enormous calamity after the show, he announced. Less than 0.5% of all Papua New Guineans have been fully vaccinated to date, a lower rate than in neighboring Melanesian countries such as Fiji, which is at 43%, Solomon Islands, which is at 3.3%, and Vanuatu, which is at 4.5%. Vaccine hesitancy in Papua New Guinea has been very strong, with misinformation and fear hampering efforts to immunize the population. Despite the international community scrambling to get vaccine doses to Papua New Guinea in March after a second outbreak in the country, the government had to destroy tens of thousands of doses that were not used before they expired. Earlier in September, 30,000 doses of AstraZeneca due to expire in two months, were sent to Vietnam through COVAX because they looked unlikely to be used in Papua New Guinea before the expiration date. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today. We're looking forward to this researcher's roundtable. Let me introduce my guest to you. John Schaefer is a PhD candidate in sociology at Boston University. He's studying how global health NGOs resist dominant field pressures and develop alternative strategies in advancing state-protected universal healthcare access, social change, and human rights. Before starting graduate school, John was involved in the founding and served as the executive director of Globe Med. He then served as the senior strategist for community organizing at Partners in Health, where he launched Partners in Health Engage, a program that links and trains activists around the country to fight for the right to health here and around the world. Most recently, John and colleagues launched R2H Action, Right to Health Action, a campaign to leverage the COVID-19 disaster to ensure that the human right to health and a safe environment is realized by everyone everywhere. Renu Singh, PhD, is a research assistant professor within the Division of Public Policy, the Jockey Club Institute for Advanced Study Junior Fellow, and a faculty affiliate with the Institute for Emerging Market Studies at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. She is also a scholar at the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law at Georgetown Law and a DAAD Research Ambassador for the German Academic Exchange Service. 
As a political scientist and microbiologist by training, Renu aims to bridge the worlds of science and policy through her research on comparative social policy, global health security and governance, and the political economy of health. Lucia Vitali is an interdisciplinary global health scholar who uses comparative political science methods, theories in sociology, and also geography to explore multi-scale effects of global health governance and primary health care access. While her research is geographically located along the border of the Dominican Republic with Haiti, non-state transnational decision-making spaces are central to her work. After graduating with a BA in 2015, Vitali taught English in Comayagua, Honduras, served as a Peace Corps volunteer in the Dominican Republic, and then worked as a contractor for USAID's Local Works Program, where she investigated access to documentation and assess the needs of cooperatives at the community level. Renu Singh, John Schaefer, and Lucia Vitali, thank you for joining me on COVID Calls today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. It's an honor to be here. So I'd like to start the way I generally do, which is just to find out where people are calling from and what the pandemic situation looks like there. Renu, I'm gonna start with you on that question, if that's okay. Sure. Uh, yeah. Um, hello from Hong Kong. Um, we have had um, maybe a daily case rate of like four recently, so pretty low for the world. Um, and, you know, I think everyone knows of the kind of travel restrictions that are in place to try to keep it that way here. Um, so generally, when you're here, um, you know, I don't go to the grocery store and worry about getting COVID. Um, that's not really something that I, you know, any of us worry about. But, um, you know, there are other measures in place, like meeting not more than four people at a time in, in restaurants, et cetera. So there are still definitely uh, measures in place aside from just the, the travel restrictions. In, in terms of vaccine availability there in Hong Kong, what has that looked like? Yeah, so we had... Um, Pfizer and Sinovac, um, enough for the whole population, I think in February, I got mine as a professor, like we were like in the first line because we were educators. Um, and so, because we were still going to campus. So I think I even got my first dose in March, second dose in April. Um, and it's, it's been more a concern of getting, um, especially the elderly to take the vaccine, but also the population in general, it was a slow buildup, um, and um, I think we're about 60% now, 57% uh, of the population is fully vaccinated, but um, the biggest gap is the elderly still actually here. Well, we might talk uh, as we go on today about vaccine hesitancy in that, in that population there. Thanks for orienting us to the location. And Lucia, let me um, ask you the same question. Where are you calling from and what's the pandemic situation there? I am calling in from Santo Domingo, the Dominican Republic today. Um, and so right now, the the president, so President Abinader, actually just two days ago, um, ended the state of emergency. So that had been going on since March of 2020. And there were sort of some some policy implications of that. Um, some some social policy funding was was taken away. Um, and the reason sort of for this, the removal of the state of emergency was having reached 60% vaccination. So currently the Dominican Republic is at 60% vaccination um, and it's mostly with Cinevac 
But the first kind of big donation of vaccines um, was AstraZeneca. So what we see is a lot of the healthcare workers, elderly folks, those that were sort of first in line to get the vaccine have different vaccines than the majority of the population. What has it meant to um, have that change getting to 60% and, and the government sort of making these announcements? What does that mean in practice? Yes, so in practice, um, it's it's been a while where there haven't been um, as many regulations. So public transportation has been open for a while. Um, there have not been um, big border closures or travel restrictions, at least when it comes to tourists. Um, and I think the biggest for a lot of vulnerable populations, especially in the rural areas, has been um, the the extension during the state of emergency of sort of extra social protection. So those that were receiving conditional cash transfers got an extra boost during the pandemic. And now with the end of the state of emergency, um, that has stopped and um, folks are kind of going back to informal work and receiving what they did before. Okay, thank you for that. Um, John Schaefer, let me bring you in. We have Hong Kong here. We have Santo Domingo here. Where are you calling from? Yeah, thanks, Scott. Um, I'm calling in from Boston, Massachusetts, um, where you know I've been teaching uh, three or four classes per week with packed classrooms of students with, with masks on, um, teaching both at, at Boston University and at um, a course at Harvard. And um, yeah, it's been a mix of, I think, trepidation and, and nervousness, uh, worry about what later this fall brings, and, and certainly this winter as we're all packed in, indoors even, even more closely. Um, but also a lot of, um, I think, joy to be back studying and learning and working with people sort of um, in, in person, even, even with masks. Uh, Massachusetts has a very high rate of, of vaccination. Um, I forget exactly. I had it written down, but I don't have it right in front of me. I think it's something like uh, 70 or, or uh, maybe even 75% of Massachusetts residents um, are vaccinated uh, with at least one dose. Um, uh, so that's very good. And and also, you know, uh, pretty good compliance with mask mandates indoors. Um, uh, people, I think, are, although I don't personally, um, people are eating um inside at restaurants. Um, uh, and yeah, I guess the, 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 the feeling, at least from, from my standpoint is, uh, is just one of, um, you know, kind of worry for what, what the, the fall and winter bring. You have a Republican governor there in Massachusetts. Isn't that right, John? That's right. I mean, I was just listening to a news piece earlier, uh, today about what's going on in, in Texas and, the kind of predictable things that you as where I'm from originally, but the governor even now sort of ramping up, even going further, trying to once again in the middle of a primary, um, put deep, more deeply politicize um, vaccine mandates. I just wanted to follow up, John, real quickly. I mean, in a mostly considered a pretty liberal state, but with two party governance and, and a tradition of that, you don't hear any kind of that discussion there in Massachusetts. I mean, how are you, how are you managing that in Massachusetts? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, Charlie Baker is a different kind of Republican than than I think um, 
exists sort of certainly on the fringes of the Republican Party nationally. Um, he's definitely not a, a Trump kind of Republican. And I think Massachusetts has a, a long history of, um, you know, electing, uh, you know, centrist um, Republicans and has a long history of um, you know, wanting sort of divided control between the the state house and um, and the governor uh, between the two parties, um, and I think you know what that means is, um, you know, I, I think Charlie Baker has been uh, fairly, you know, certainly committed to risk mitigation strategies, mask mandates, been a big supporter of, of vaccination from the very beginning, um, and actually has been supportive of some important public health. Uh, interventions, funding, uh, and supporting uh, pretty aggressive contact, contact tracing initiatives, um, supporting um, uh, health workers to, to to ensure that you know people who are diagnosed um, are able to um, you know find close contacts and 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 identify them and, and help them to get tested. Uh, pretty good testing across the state. Um, so I think from a public health standpoint. Um, uh, Charlie Baker has been been fairly fairly good. A um, whole range of other issues, though, obviously, um, you know, ranging from kind of slow uptake on um, eviction moratoriums um, uh, and other kinds of uh, more social su- support um, challenges. Okay, Th- thanks for giving that that detail. I do think it's important to point out that you don't have to sacrifice two party governance to actually have some kind of sense. Uh, when it comes to not killing people with bad public policy. So, um, and we might come back around to that. I want to ask a, a follow-up question of everybody. Renu, I'm going to start with you on this. Just wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing uh, kind of a personal memory, if you would, of this pandemic period, something that has stuck with you that kind of defines this time for you. Sure, yeah. Um, so I actually moved to Hong Kong um, in January. So at a time when it wasn't really good anywhere. And um, for me, that has been pretty defining because that is also when Hong Kong for the first time, I think a week before I arrived, changed to the three-week quarantine period, the 21 days. So um, I hadn't planned for it. No one had ever gone through it before. Maybe a week of people before me had. Um, and I dramatically dropped luggage on my foot and broke my toe on the way to Hong Kong. Um, so it yeah it really has in a way like that day and that the three weeks defined a lot for me because you know there was no precedent to like get help in the quarantine so like you know the the hotel tried to give me ice and things but like i was just on my own for three weeks in a room banned from exiting um uh, with a broken toe so uh, i think for me it's like pretty dramatic um and uh definitely defining of the year after um in terms of then figuring out how to fix the toe in a new country but i think you know it's given me a lot of perspective and i've also paid a lot more attention to experiences of other people kind of going through quarantines paying a lot of attention to quarantine in general i mean i work on pandemic politics but um i think just the experience of living through that and being one of the first people to do a 21 day um really changed my perspective in terms of what things to even pay attention to. Thank you for sharing that. And I, I'm sorry for that pain. And uh, I hope you're okay. Works now. Now. Okay, good. Uh, I went through 14 days here in South Korea, and I thought very foolishly coming into it that it was going to be some kind of, I didn't think it was going to be a vacation, but I thought it was going to be some kind of suspension of uh, normal stress. And boy, was I wrong. Uh, yeah. It was hard for me. Was it hard for you? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah, it was it was definitely. I mean, in a lot of ways. I mean, I think also January was a time in general in the pandemic when we were all a bit worried. There was no vaccine, so for me to fly for the first time, I mean, yeah. having been in the states before, we had a lot of issues, um, and um, it was a weird time to commit to flying a sixteen-hour flight, and then also. Um, yeah, I, I did not enjoy it. <laughs> Definitely did not, <laughs> but it is what it is. Lucia, is there a memory you can share with us that uh, defines this period for you? Um, thanks for sharing that, Renu. I, it's, it's interesting to hear of these mandatory quarantines in, in the DR, the Dominican Republic, things look very differently. Um, and I think my most defining moment of the pandemic, I moved to the Dominican Republic at the beginning of March, 2020. Um, and so I landed here and here you sort of, you live, you maintain life and you die by bleach. Bleach is everything. Bleach is what you put in standing water so mosquitoes don't lay eggs. Bleach is how you clean raw vegetables if you want to eat salad. Um, bleach is what you clean the floors with so babies can crawl around and they won't get sick. So bleach is kind of just, this way of life here. And when everything was coming out about the pandemic and when everyone was flocking to grocery stores, I remember going to four grocery stores and I'm in the capital city. So I went to four big grocery stores and I couldn't find bleach. And it wasn't just kind of hopping in, hopping into a grocery store, looking for bleach and leaving. It was standing in line for an hour, an hour and a half sort of snaked through the parking lots under the Caribbean sun and waiting all this time and you'd get to the front door and you'd step in a pool of bleach water to clean your shoes and you'd spray your hands with bleach water to sanitize them. And I just, I thought that was just so ironic mm -hmm. going into these stores, searching for this thing that, that everyone thought would just keep them safe. Um, and I didn't end up finding bleach that day. And I don't remember what happened, but I eventually did get it. Um, and now I sort of keep at least a gallon in the pantry. That's so evocative. And just to add maybe another detail, were people wearing masks while they were waiting in line to get the bleach? Well, and that was the other thing is that everyone was masked, gloves, face shields. And I remember talking to friends from home. Um, and I remember the first time I heard that the mask was this political statement and not wearing one was this political statement. Yeah, and right. I thought that was so weird. And of course, things kind of transpired the way that they did. But um, here, it's always been masks, double masks, gloves, face shields. John, bringing you in, if you wouldn't mind uh, answering the same question, something that's really stuck in your memory this time? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was in, in Boston. Um, I had field work that I had planned to do for my dissertation research that got canceled. Um, you know, uh, universities weren't letting grad students travel, wasn't able to get my funding. Uh, but the thing that, you know, was most, I, I think, um, uh, intense in those first days of the pandemic in 2020 was uh, my sister had her first um, son, her first child. And, um, you know, I wasn't able to be there. My parents weren't able to go to the hospital. Um, it was a uh, sort of a, just a very difficult situation for her to be, um, you know, by herself and all of us sort of trying to FaceTime and, and be as close as we could via technology. Um, but, 
uh, it was, yeah. And, and, you know, obviously we were afraid and nervous in Boston, you know, this was before people had mass mass uh, produced masks. So we were, you know, tying shirts around our, our faces to go to the grocery stores, really not sure, you know, you couldn't buy, um, uh, uh, you know, antiseptic wipes or, uh, any kind of, um, uh, alcohol to, to clean your hands. So it was just so much unknown and, and it, it was such a, an intense and scary moment, but, but not being there, uh, be able to be there with my sister was, uh, I think one of these, these things that will always stick with me. Luckily I've gotten to, to meet my nephew since then, and they're all happy and healthy. Um, uh, luckily, uh, knock on wood, but, uh, it's been, it was a, it was an intense moment. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. You know, I, I think, and I remember this from early on the pandemic. Um, if you cast your mind back to the spring of 2020 and people talking about canceling weddings and unable to attend graduations. And every time I talk with somebody about that, um, it was always predicated by a, I'm really sorry that I'm going to say this, or I don't feel like I can express this or something to put it in some perspective, but those are real losses too. And, and I think everybody, you know, most people have experienced something like that. You don't get to, to have that many graduations or opportunities to bring your family together around a birth. So thank you, John, for sharing that. Um, and I, I'm right there with you. I've had a similar experience in, in my family, so I can definitely connect with that. just remind everybody you're listening to COVID Calls. It's a researcher's roundtable today on COVID Calls. I'm really excited to have three rising scholars, Lucia Vitali, Renu Singh, and John Schaefer here today. John, I want to come to you first to just ground us a little bit in your in your research and activism. I'm not quite sure how you do everything that you do and still sleep. Maybe you don't sleep, um, but I'm wondering if you could tell us about your work in healthcare justice, and especially um, this project, uh, Right to Health, R2H, Right to Health Action. What's it been like to do health activism during a pandemic? Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, Right to Health Action uh, was really formed, you know, during in the first weeks of the pandemic, the first weeks of lockdown in, in Massachusetts, and really by the pandemic. Um, I, I just remember the first week of lockdown in Massachusetts, um, realizing just what a catastrophic failure was about to happen in terms of policymaking in the United States, um, you know, how terrifying it was, you know, to have the Trump administration sort of at the helm of public health policy in the midst of a pandemic that um, none of us knew how bad it was going to be, but it seemed um, very uh, threatening as it's turned out to be. Um, and so I, I just, you know, put out some Facebook messages and Twitter messages and, and said, who, who would like to talk more about what kind of activism um, could be done? And and um, a bunch of people replied. I had about 100, you know, short one-on-one -on -one meetings with people talking with them about what they thought could be possible. Um, I have sort of been in health activist spaces for some time and was able to interact with ACT UP alumni and uh, public health um, activists and uh, folks from my days at Partners in Health and, and many others. Um, 
And we decided, well, let's get together. And so we just hosted a series of Zoom meetings. I mean, not unlike uh, what you've done here with COVID calls to bring together, you know, great thinkers, um, activists, people on the front lines of the pandemic, healthcare workers, people who have lost loved ones um, to, to begin to think about how do we organize in this, in this moment when we can't actually uh, be face to face with one another. And um, yeah, that, that essentially birthed um, Right to Health Action, which, um, you know, is an organization that's really united in, in, in anger uh, at, at our failures um, and aimed towards advancing and fighting for sort of a raft of policies that we think are necessary both to end um, this current pandemic, uh, but also to prevent the pandemics of the future. We know that COVID-19 is one of an accelerating list of um, uh, zoonotic emerging infectious diseases, um, whose you know the pace of emergence is unlikely to to slow down, um, and unless we really radically rethink um, both, you know, our public health containment measures, which are vitally important in addition to healthcare infrastructure, we don't combine that with uh, a really thoughtful set of policies that. Um, help protect communities that are are vulnerable to um, sort of the combined effects of um, racial capitalism and extractive um, uh, capitalism and and deforestation. And uh, we're going to see, you know, just a, a you know a, a potentially a worse pandemic than COVID nineteen uh, sooner sooner than than later. Um, and so, I'm uh, happy to talk more about the sort of the policy work, but. We've um, been able to organize now. We have 150,000 people on our email list. We've had events with thousands of, of people. We have a great team of 40 organizers that meet every week on Zoom to, to plan all of our efforts. And all of this, uh, you know, is has been built with zero dollars, so uh, no no real significant outside funding. Um, so yeah, it's been an interesting ride, and it's made the dissertation writing go uh, more slowly than it, it probably should be. Uh, but it's it's felt really important, and and also made this period, which has been so dark, um, a little bit uh, more meaningful probably than it would have otherwise. Well, I don't want to speak for your advisor, so I, I don't want to say anything about the timing of your of your path. But uh, it's important the work you're doing. And if it's slowing you down and getting the dissertation done, it sounds like it's coming with great benefit to everyone else. I wanted to follow up quickly, though, in terms of just activism at this time. Um, you know, digital activism and outreach is not a brand new thing, but uh, doing it in the midst of a pandemic in which people are scared, isolated, also trying to work and take care of children and do everything else to add that on, give us a little bit of a sense of what it's meant for people to try to be active and, and join an organization and actually take actions, um, particularly through that early period of the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, um, it's it's meant a lot to a lot of people. I mean, I, I think um, one of the good things is uh, we've been able to assemble a really amazing core team of people who um, sort of have key leadership roles. They take on you know, our, our organizing program or our events or our fundraising work. Um, and they, you know, enable and create the space for people who can't take leadership roles sort of in the core organizing functions of the group um, to sort of plug in when they can. They can come to a visit with their senator's um, office 
because they have a state captain in Indiana or Illinois or California who's organizing those meetings for them. Um, so, you know, I think we have a, a really good sort of ladder of engagement where uh, people can sort of plug in where they can and, and uh, based on the availability of time that they have. Um, so I think that's been been effective. We also have a, just a bunch of events that sort of um, uh, on a monthly basis or so that sort of provide an on-ramp for people. So for folks who maybe haven't had a lobby visit with their uh, the staffer of their um, uh, member of Congress, um, we have trainings and um, uh, 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 a committed group of folks who have been through those kinds of activities many times to make it easier and sort of demystify a lot of that work for them. Um, uh, but yeah, I think, you know, the other piece of this we're hosting in, in about a week, um, a storyteller training. So people who have lost loved ones or um, who have, um, you know, experienced COVID-19 themselves um, to help them develop the, you know, both the courage, but also the real skills of, of sharing their stories sort of in a public leadership way, uh, especially with lawmakers. And, and I think that that's also been a really meaningful outlet for people. Well, thanks for this introduction to your work. Lucia, let me come to you. You were sharing with us that you had arrived in the Dominican Republic early in the pandemic and painted a very vivid image uh, for us of what that looked like. Tell us a, a bit, if you will, about the research that you're doing there and uh, what's at stake for you in, intellectually in terms of making sense of the pandemic there in the Dominican Republic. Of course, yes. So I originally came with funding for in-person field work. Um, and of course, that didn't end up panning out. So the last uh, year and a half, I've been doing virtual field work, um, which has its own drawbacks, um, but it's also sort of forced me to be creative in, in a few different ways. So my work mostly is looking at um, multi-scale effects of health rights regimes. So sort of what are we seeing at the transnational level? What's happening at the national level? And then what are we observing and how is that landing locally? And so where this sort of came from is conversations um, just with local populations, often women, um, and often women in salons. And so we'd get, we would get together and we'd be in these salons um, and they would talk about how, how they would navigate the healthcare system. So one woman would tell the group that there would be a dental clinic in Restauración and it was for children under five and it was next week and you had to go. Or another woman would share that the health clinic down the road just got in hypertensive medication. So if your father needs some, go quickly and get it. And so what this, what my project really was sort of birthed out of is the agency that we see at the local scale of these populations that navigate these fragmented healthcare systems. And so what's really interesting, I think about this work in the pandemic is what we see with the pandemic is sort of an X-ray being placed on health systems of the global south. And what we're seeing is exactly where these health systems are failing at the transnational and at the national level. And so what my work is looking at right now is sort of what it means to access health resources um, and what it means when those health resources or this basket of public goods that we're used to receiving from the state, I'm in a political science department, so. I talk a lot about the state. Um, when we're used to receiving this basket of public health goods from the state, what does it mean all of a sudden when that's fragmented between bilateral aid 
and medical missions and charity events um, for our claims to citizenship. Let me just follow up on that. There's a lot in there. Uh, do disaster, how do disasters complicate that? It is, I'm especially thinking of you know, the longstanding problems in Haiti of, of you know, disaster as an opportunity for aid organizations. And I don't mean to be cynical about that, but then we see the outcome of that on the ground. The research that I've seen is it often makes what can be a fragmented health system even more fragmented, even more stressful. I don't want to oversimplify things, but does that model work in terms of Dominican Republic? No, I think I think that comment is sort of spot on. I think what we're seeing right now in the midst of the pandemic is a lot more actors being added to the mix. So in, in the case where state-run health services and systems are being overburdened by caring for patients with COVID, we have these other institutions that are coming in to sort of fill in that gap. And so normally what that gap looks like filled in is often in the Dominican Republic, since tourism is one of the biggest sectors here, you see volunteer tourists. So what happens in the pandemic all of a sudden when these volunteer tourists can't come down every six months to give people their metformin or their diabetes medication? And so what I think we see during a disaster is a failure of these systems in really predictable ways. We already knew that these systems were fragile before. And what we're seeing with the pandemic, what we're seeing with this x-ray is where exactly they're failing. And I think you're right, what you just mentioned, that a lot of institutions kind of come in during disasters um, and there's a need, right? The need is greater and these institutions come in and rather than I think addressing what these really root structural problems are, health systems and their failures, we're sort of expanding and widening this gap. Right, thank you for that introduction to your research, and we're going to follow up on that. Let me get uh, Renu in here to talk about your research in this time, and particularly, I mean, you're also coming from a political science perspective, but you've been looking at the ways that public opinion has been shaped during the pandemic, shaped by the disaster. And so talk about that, and then also talk about um, you've been doing research based there in Hong Kong as well, sort of Asia-Pacific responses to the pandemic. So introduce us to your work. Sure, yeah. Um, so yeah, I often um, am interested in policy change questions and, and public opinion questions. Um, I think also, Lucia, it resonated a lot with me uh, that, you know, your, your research changes given the context. And so um, all of a sudden, a lot more of my research has been um, on surveys because I've always loved them, but also it's I can't do field work. So you kind of adjust as you go as a researcher. Um, but at least one of the skills that I have is, is transferable in a COVID context, I guess. Um, and so, yeah, one of the, one of the things I did do productively in quarantine was run this survey <laughs> in the United States. Um, so also, yes, not a relaxing vacation, but at least I got something that I was able to do at the time. Um, and I, I ran a survey in the States that I was interested in running because I was interested in the relationship between disasters and how they shape public opinion. Um, and so I, what I did um, for the first kind of survey that I've been working on this year is I was priming Americans on the impact of COVID-19 on the pandemic, both health-wise and economically, 
um, and trying to see if that would affect their support for government action to address other major public health concerns. Um, as an obesity scholar um, and what my book project was on uh, before COVID um, happened, uh, a lot of my research was on public health policy, but not not on COVID, of course. And so I, I've always been interested to see, you know, related to my work, but in general, all of the public health challenges that we face, what happens maybe from, from us going through this together? What does that mean politically um, in terms of support for other policies? Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of literature on this um, that looks at, you know, everything from uh, severe weather to pandemics and the change in support for the government in place or support for climate change policy in general. Um, and so what I did was uh, basically randomly assign respondents to receiving a treatment where I talked about the effects of COVID in the U.S. Um, and for those that received the treatment and were then asked about their support for various public health policies, what I found is that they actually were uh, more supportive. And, and these policies kind of, you know, they range from um, domestic and foreign spending on public health to um, to HIV testing, to opioids. Um, it, it was kind of a, a a general range of, of public health policy. Um, and uh, what I also found, although not a very strong pattern, but something we're of course always interested in the US given how polarized things are, is that there was also some evidence for this being more effective among Democrats and independents or Republicans. And, and then the most interesting thing for me was actually that someone who had known someone who died of COVID, they had the strongest um, response in a way they had more support. Um, and so, yeah, and I, and I did this partially, of course, because I work on other issues and was interested to see what that would mean, um, you know, for these other issues we care about. But this is also something that, you know, I think would have implications for practitioners, for advocates of, of a number of public health um, policies and, and, and kind of issues that we are trying to push forward. Um, and so that's kind of more on the US side. And then, you know, now being in Asia, I do work more on the Asia Pacific. Um, and so I joined a team that had some really interesting data on six countries in the Asia Pacific. So um, Hong Kong, Japan, Singapore, Thailand, Taiwan, and South Korea were the six jurisdictions that they had in uh, had a number of uh, survey questions run about, and we were really interested in understanding why, you know, we here kind of viewed COVID as, as a success in phase one, as I like to call it, um, of COVID. The Asia Pacific generally was highly compliant with public health measures. People were wearing their masks, washing their hands, social distancing, et cetera. Um, and um, that's often attributed to why there was so much success here and why they were uniquely able to do that. Um, but I was also interested in, in trying to understand a little bit more of maybe the what was what was behind the support for such policies. And the strongest predictor um, we found is actually a belief that neighbors are taking action to fight COVID-19. That seemed to be, um, you know, the strongest. Um, but also worrying about COVID was uh, definitely a predictor. And um, the one that we all often think of is experience with SARS um, came up as a predictor as well. And I think that does play a large part of, uh, you know, plays a large part in explaining why uh, you do have so much compliance. I mean, it's something we talk about, but it was interesting to see that there is actually data um, to support that in a number of countries. 
Um, and then and then finally, trust in experts also mattered generally, um, which, you know, uh, I think the role of experts in science expertise has you know, really just become this huge focus, I think, because during the pandemic, you know, Dr. Fauci, I'm not sure we would have ever known who he was otherwise. Um, and so I think it's really interesting to see that variation also um, here versus in other places and how we respond to it. Uh, but yeah, generally, that's that's been a lot of what I've been working on um, in both the U.S. and also my new home um, is kind of trying to understand what what's going on and what it means going forward. Um, that's all of you are doing fascinating work and, and thank you Renu for for describing that just to go back to the first part you were talking about in the US um, understanding public opinion shifts in, in the midst of and after disaster is uh, a long as you point out a sort of long-standing social science um, problem I'm curious about your take on the time scale issue how long do you expect I don't know if this is something that you uh, were able to do research on but I'm curious about it if someone had their mind changed about a package of other issues around health because of an experience with COVID, either directly or, or adjacent, what's the what's the lifespan of that awareness or consciousness? Or is there any way to, to try to model that? And I ask that because COVID, I mean, we're in, you talked about phase one. We're, we're By my count, we're probably in something in the U.S., around a phase four maybe stage of it. And it's not endemic in most of the U.S., so I'm just wondering how long will people's mind remain changed? And the inverse of that is, is it possible throughout the course of the pandemic for people, how dynamic will opinion be, I suppose, is, is my question. Can you get at that question? Yeah, um, so I didn't measure it in the survey, but it, I did run this in, in, I think I ran it in January or February. Um, and so I think by then we had already you know, it wasn't exactly a year, but it had been almost a year since, um, you know, we were dealing with COVID-19. And so I found some, um, I think, hope in seeing that, you know, mentioning COVID and, and giving that treatment and explaining what the situation was almost a year later could still have an effect. Um, but of course, yeah, I mean, going forward, how long will that last? And I think it's it's not like there's a set answer in the sense that a lot of it depends on you know, things like what John's working on, this advocacy, this pushing forward an issue, making sure it's still in people's minds. And I also work on HIV uh, policy and the pandemic there. And, you know, we're in our fourth decade of that pandemic. And um, I often look to that to, to, to be inspired in terms of what's going on now. And, you know, to some extent, there was a lot of movement in HIV um, at a certain point. You could argue that, you know, we've established institutions and we've created a system to kind of keep that going, or you could also argue that we need more. And I think it just depends. I think it just depends, um, you know, how we'll use this and whether we'll actually, you know, take the take the time to maybe make some systemic change or institutional change, or even if those institutions are normative, um, you know, and so um, where are we with that right now? I think it also depends on where you are and, and the state's I don't know. Polarization for me makes it really hard to to be as hopeful as I, I normally would be. Um, I think because it it's not really like our entire psyche in the states is one way or the other. It's, it's very divided um, on a kind of red and blue. But um, I still kind of hope that you know there can be there can be this movement behind um, you know really pushing for change. 
Um, because, you know, it's not another H1N1. It's not another SARS or Ebola, um, you know, and those were huge, of course, in the context where they, the outbreaks were most um, felt. But I think, you know, hopefully COVID means that we really, the world is at a standstill and, and you know, the effects will be far reaching and hopefully some of them are good. Some of the, some of the change that we're hoping to see. John, I want to give you a chance to comment on any of that. And particularly, I'm seeing some really interesting connections with what um, Renu is describing here in terms of the possibility um, for policy action awareness of people connecting, you know, this time of COVID to broader health concerns. I mean, that's at the base of your activism. Any thoughts on that? And then maybe give you an opportunity to talk about some specific legislation that you're hoping to see, or at least specific policy areas that you think have could grow out of this particular moment. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree that, you know, people's attention spans are, are fairly short. Um, people are concerned with their daily lives and caring for their loved ones and the urgent pressures of putting the food on the table, you know, staying housed, not being evicted, etc. And I think that that makes um, sort of sustained attention on sort of the abstract and distant um, politics of pandemic prevention, or even you know, the things that might be necessary to bring this pandemic, um, you know, more swiftly to a close, make that all very hard. Um, but then, you know, you have this growing constituency of people who have lost loved ones and who have um, experienced COVID-19 very directly, either themselves or in their immediate communities. And I, I think that there is um, a, a growing community of, of people who want to take action and who want to work on these things. Um, and, uh, and that's very hopeful. I also think, you know, despite there being extreme polarization along party lines in the United States and, um, and certainly a Republican party, uh, on that um, takes extreme positions on, uh, you know, sort of mundane public health policies in ways that are deeply harmful. I do think that there is, uh, there are opportunities for bipartisanship. I mean, uh, Rainey was talking about HIV. Um, there were like extraordinary uh, bipartisan efforts driven in part by activists, but also by evangelical Christians who uh, enabled the context for uh, signing PEPFAR into law, for instance. Again, you know, an imperfect vehicle, but something that led to millions of people infected with HIV having access to uh, sophisticated uh, antiretroviral therapy, for instance. And, you know, I think there's a moment right now where we could. Um, uh, through organizing a constituency of people affected directly by COVID-19 uh, who disagree on a wide variety of, of particularly partisan issues um, uh, to, to work together on, on pandemic prevention. I mean, the Republicans might frame it in terms of global health security, uh, whereas perhaps the Democrats might frame it in terms of you know, solidarity with um, uh, you know, countries in the global south. Um, but regardless, I think that there are opportunities um, to work together on, on sensible policies. Um, uh, and so, you know, just one example that we've been uh, pushing for um, uh, for some time now is Senate Bill 2297, the International Pandemic Preparedness and COVID-19 Response Act. Um, it's actually, I mean, it's an enormous piece of legislation. It, it just passed the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Um, on a bipartisan basis. Um, and it actually has real legs to get passed. We need 
more U.S. senators to co uh, co sponsor it. Um, uh, and uh, but uh, we're we're working uh, very actively right now. We've had hundreds of of meetings with um, uh, grassroots constituents um, with their uh, with staffers uh, of their senators um, on on this bill. Uh, but uh, basically, it would it would do do three big things. Uh, first, it would um, it would help fund and, and sustain and, and support uh, much more resilient health systems and workforces and supply chains. So it would fund um, a wide variety of organizations um, uh, to, to, to deepen it and improve health system strengthening uh, uh, around the world. Um, second, it would uh, help support um, and expand technical capacity for um, global South countries to achieve compliance on the international health regulations. Um, uh, the IHRs are a, a set of sort of guidelines produced by the WHO around um, testing capacity, laboratory capacity, detection of pandemics, emerging infectious disease threats, et cetera. Um, and then third, and this is the, the piece that's very, very important, it would assist and support partner countries in reducing their risk of zoonotic spillover events. So in addition to containment of infectious disease spread um, and bolstering the systems to enable containment to be more effective, it would also really crucially um, start to build the infrastructure necessary to prevent um, zoonotic spillover from, from happening in the first place. And happy to talk more about sort of how it would go about doing that. But um, it's a pretty big deal, and uh, the fact that it has some bipartisan support in the Senate is also a, a big deal. I think we need to continue to organize um, communities that have been directly affected by COVID-19 to, to support legislation like this. want to remind folks that you're listening to COVID Calls, and today is a fascinating researchers roundtable with Lucia Vitale, Renu Singh, and John Schaefer. And Lucia, I want to come to you. John was just talking about this International Pandemic Preparedness and COVID-19 Response Act, which he's hopeful has an opportunity, has some bipartisan support. That's not a statement you make every day about the United States Congress. Um, so let's put that in the frame, and I want to ask Lucia about this, but then give everybody a chance to comment just about how you see the pandemic um, shaping, reshaping international health politics. And uh, you're talking about your work in the Dominican Republic. Of course, we think about the Haiti-Dominican Republic relationship and the way that medical diplomacy, vaccine diplomacy works. I mean, these are areas that have been studied, studied for a long time, and yet COVID seems to be writing a new chapter. Lucia, your thoughts? Yes, thank you for that question. Um, I think, first of all, the, the Dominican Republic and, and Haiti share an island and they share a really contentious border space. Um, and so what I think we've seen with that border space that's really interesting, I mentioned earlier that the DR is has tourism sort of as the number one economic activity. So what I think we've seen, one, one big phenomenon we've seen at the transnational level is um, the politics of borders. So how do we close borders? To whom are borders closed? Who has this freedom of movement 
Um, and then in the context of the DR in Haiti, uh, just earlier this year, so in February of 2021, the Dominican president, Luis Abinader, announced plans to build a border wall. And this is after um, some, some energy by some right-wing nationalist groups in the Dominican Republic, sort of calling attention to this idea that Haitians were using Dominican health resources and crossing the border and migrating to receive health care. And so on the one hand, we have this closure of the terrestrial border. And on the other, we have the president um, Abinader together with the Ministry of Tourism and the Ministry um, or together with the Ministry of Tourism that is coming out and saying tourism does not represent a health threat to our country. Not only are they not representing a health threat, but also we are going to provide tourists who come and visit us and stay in hotels here in the Dominican Republic with health insurance, with comprehensive health insurance. And not just that, we will also reimburse your flights if you have to move them um, because of illness. So while we see on the one hand, migrants sort of receiving these and there's um, health scholars. So Paul Farmer is one, um, Matt Spark is another that use this term geographies of blame. And I think that's a really awesome term because we see tourists sort of escaping this blame, right? The first person, by the way, the first patient zero in the Dominican Republic was an Italian tourist. And so while that's silenced and not being talked about, we have this really intense reaction to the DR Haitian border. So transnationally, I think we're seeing a lot around borders right now. Um, and that's landing nationally in different ways in different places. And that's how it's landing here on the island of Kiskeya. Um, another thing that I think I'm seeing more and more is this big question of vaccine diplomacy. And there's this really great quote by uh, Alondra Nelson. So she's she was the president of the Social Science Research Council, um, and now she is the deputy director of science and society with the Biden administration. And she also writes this great book about uh, the Black Panther health clinics in Oakland, California. So she's just this powerhouse of a, of a woman researcher, just person. And she opens this book with this line, she says, health is politics by other means. And I think that is such an awesome way to describe what we're seeing right now in the pandemic, especially with things like border closures, especially with things like vaccine diplomacy. So we're sort of seeing these established routes, right? So these countries in the global north have these relationships with countries in the global south. And so we have these vaccines concentrated here and they're being distributed along these lines that have existed for a while. And so director of the World Health Organization, um, Tedros, Dr. Tedros Gyesus, um, calls, calls this, or he sort of uses this phrase, um, while these people, all of these countries are coming to this vaccine ball and there are countries that have that don't have political clout that aren't attracting vaccines and they're kind of wallflowers on this at this vaccine ball. 
And so what's that's really dangerous, right? And we've been seeing that here in the DR in Haiti, while the Dominican Republic has been receiving shipments of vaccines um, from, from China, from the United States, from England, Haiti didn't receive their first shipment of vaccines until a couple of months ago. Um, so these, and, and while we have this, this supposed sort of vaccine mechanism, sharing mechanism, COVAX, that is supposed to be providing for the equitable distribution of vaccines, we see again sort of these predictable outcomes um, that happened during the pandemic sort of along these established political lines. It's always a good day when Alondra Nelson gets name checked, I have to say, and, and she was a guest on COVID calls and it was a tremendous conversation. Renu, I wanna bring you in on this. I know you've also been tracking WHO um, technology access pool and uh, the COVAX situation. Um, anything on that you wanna to respond to? And I'm particularly interested on that East Asian um, you know, uh, what's what your sense of what's been happening around uh, vaccine availability in East Asian countries and Southeast Asian countries, if you're watching that? Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, I think, you know, we're, we're past a bit of the, the emergency phase, I think, where, you know, we were worried about what was going to happen with the WHO, but it's it doesn't take us, you don't have to go too many months back to remember that we had a president who was trying to take us out of it. We we're one of the major funders um, and we went through a whole, um, you know, identity crisis, um, even as, as public health scholars who normally criticize the WHO or we were like, oh, wait, wait, hold up. We need to we need to go and defend it first because this is <laughs> normally we go to them with complaints of what they're not doing right. But today we need to be like, no, 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 we still need it. Everyone um, in STS has been having this experience in, in the last 19 months. The, the, the world that we've made our whole career critiquing all of a sudden we're like, wait, wait, hold, hold up, hold up. Not that far. Don't go that far. Anyway, keep going. But I think it's a really great point to make. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's just like, it's not that bad. It's not, it's not so bad that we need to leave or create some other version that we think is going to fix it, you know. Um, and so, yeah. And, and so I think it's really, you know, that's the first thing that comes to mind is, okay, we have international institutions that are, are put in, have been put in place and, and have been asked to do this, but also do a million other things. If we're going to look forward and think about where we need to go in terms of international policymaking, coordination, all of that, it starts with the WHO um, and what we need to do for it, how it's not funded the way it should be, how it has way more goals than maybe it's capable of, of reaching um, without more, more um, for it. Um, but, you know, having said that, I'm going to put that hat aside and come back to critiquing a little bit because COVAX, you know, Lucia, as you mentioned, it's just a giant failure right now. Um, you know, it's, it's very underfunded. And also they had this ambition, which was a great ambition to, to ensure vaccine equity and to allow for, you know, R&D and for distribution to be equitable. And we're, we're not, right? We're 18 months into COVAX being founded, being established. The platform is 2 billion doses short of achieving its goal, um, of its goal of, of vaccine coverage for 40 adults, 40% of adults rather. Um, and so, you know, I think there's a lot to think about there, you know, and, um, you know, wealthy countries just ended up not 
playing into it. First of all, they didn't promise as much right away. It took some time to build that momentum. And then once it was there, they still took the lion's share of the global vaccine supply through bilateral kind of negotiation with pharmaceuticals. I mean, one example that's often cited is Canada has had ordered five times the number of vaccines that they needed um, for the country. Five times is a huge number. Um, and, you know, now we're left in a world where there isn't enough vaccine to go around. Um, people are starting to, even if countries in the global south have the money to buy them, there aren't vaccines for them, which is not what was supposed to happen with COVAX. And and you know we're now stuck in a situation where a necessary but sufficient solution temporarily um, is vaccine donations. But you know um, that's not a long-term strategy at all. I mean, we need to you know we need to release excess doses from contracts first of all. Having these kind of almost expired doses going around obviously is better than nothing. But there's a whole whole problem in terms of you know supply and in terms of demand in being able to get them and get the right infrastructure in these global South kind of countries. I mean, imagine having even less time than a rich country would have to implement everything you need to with vaccines are about to expire. It just doesn't make sense. Um, you know, if we're at the point where we need to do that, okay, but it's obviously we shouldn't really, going forward, we shouldn't be in this situation. Um, and so, you know, I think, yes, contracts should be changed, uh, but also we need to really share that technology um, and, you know, we really need a TRIPS waiver is what we need. And, you know, TRIPS is that WTO agreement um, on trade-related aspects of intellectual property rights. Um, there is also some precedent in the sense that, you know, coming back to HIV AIDS, um, there, there were movements to kind of make drugs available. And that had a huge effect in terms of reducing the cost of drugs and getting those drugs, those ARVs available to, um, you know, all of the people that needed it. And we know this works. So, you know, we need to get the momentum to to make that happen. And I think those are the those are the things that come to mind right away when we, I think of your question of like, what can we do, in a, you know, on a national level and what needs to change? It's like these, you know, these these institutions need to do more. And we need to we need to not just assume that and, you know, plan a whole international strategy around, you know, charity from wealthy countries to 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 ones that are less wealthy. Like that's not gonna work. It's not a good strategy. Renu, what does your researcher's intuition tell you about public opinion on this and whether or not the pandemic has been a, a decisively terrible enough global event that it could reorder people's thinking about issues like intellectual property protection, for, for example, which I haven't looked at recent polls, but in the United States, you know, I was, I, I guess I'm always surprised by things I shouldn't be, but you know, <laughs> it that disasters can change a lot, but there's some things they just don't change. And public opinion around intellectual property sharing um, was a mixed bag in the, in the US, even in, in the worst of it. I don't know, I haven't looked at that recently, but I'm wondering how you how you might even think about that, that problem. And I guess that also presumes that there would be a connection between public opinion and international policy action, um, demanding that pharmaceuticals um, share this intellectual property. Maybe that's a bad assumption from the beginning. Yeah, I mean, I would say for those of us that work in this space, it's a pretty obvious connection for a lot of others. I'm not sure they think of it right away. Um, but, you know, this this is actually what I'm trying to, to, to study in like the next set of the next set of surveys that I'm doing um, is to really look at this perception of, of just even donations. Um, you know, but maybe I should actually think about intellectual property and see if it's even part of the part of the story. But, um, you know, 
I was also just interested in, in, you know, are people there in this kind of, I think ties to John, something you'd mentioned of, you know, the framing of the left and the right in terms of doing the right thing. Is it global health security or is it something else? And so I've also found that it's really interesting to see, and I want to see, I want to study this now in the next, in the next set of surveys is when you, when you see how much someone might be supportive of vaccine donations, are they willing to do it out of kind of a self-concern to be safe because otherwise COVID is going to come back around or because there's some other economic or, or other problem they're concerned about? Or do they actually believe in vaccine equity and the right to health to begin with? Um, and, you know, there, there's there is support that people like Pew, I think, does a lot of interesting um, work on this. And they have definitely um, already done research to show that, you know, people generally are supportive. But I think thinking you're supportive and 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 in theory wanting to be supportive versus like wanting to get that vaccine or get that booster now. I mean, the whole discussion around I like I just love to be a fly on the wall in conversations with people who don't know I study this stuff about whether or not they think they need boosters um, when we're still dealing with a world where, you know, three percent of an entire continent of Africa is even has vaccines, um, not to kind of diminish, of course, the need for it for, for certain groups and, and the fact that, you know, we need to consider it seriously. But, um, you know, I think it's just, I think even in theory, if you, if you think, you know, you should have these donations or you should have this intellectual property, it kind of gets caught up in everything else, um, you know, that comes to mind. I just have to, to add, thank you for that. And, and John, I'm going to bring you in on this on a second too. any part of it you want to comment on, but just sitting here in South Korea, having only recently had my second dose uh, and kind of like you, Renu, having left the United States. Well, I don't know if you'd left from the United States, but I left the United States and arrived in South Korea um, early this year and left the U.S. maybe two weeks before vaccines were broadly available. So myself and my family arrived here and then have gone through this, this waiting process. And I spoke with microbiologist Sung Young Pek yesterday here in South Korea about that. And he pointed to, and I think rightfully, the, the pride that is felt here in South Korea that once a vaccine has become available, of course, the implementation and the infrastructure was there and waiting and, it, and the uptake has now surpassed the United States, very rapidly surpassed, greatly surpassed the United States. Um, but in that interim period of waiting, and this is a rich country, watching news coverage from the United States about vaccine mandates and anger and people smashing vials and then the the discourse around boosters um it was infuriating and that's here in south korea i can only imagine what watching that discourse must look like for health officials and people who are trying to save lives in like you said in places um you know i was talking earlier about papua new guinea or other you know places in micronesia where the vaccine rate might be two or three or four percent right now Randy, i'll just give you a chance to comment on that quickly and i want to bring john in Sure. Yeah. I mean, I just, yeah, I a hundred percent agree. And, and being in Hong Kong, it's kind of this weird in between where we still have a zero COVID policy. Um, and so we live in a bubble where it's generally safe, but we also had, ac I had access to vaccines before my family, after I left the U S and I did leave from the States. Um, that was a weird feeling also, first of all, secondly, to then get it and then watch no one else want to get it. Everyone, like when I asked, you know, I work at a science and tech university, even colleagues are like, oh, we're just waiting. And I was like, what are we waiting for? Like, I don't understand, like for COVID, like, I mean, you know, we really, I don't understand. And I think people are like, well, it's so new. And, you know, we're just waiting, but they had the luxury of it because they never have lived in a world where COVID could take you at any moment, I think. And that's my theory for why 
Hong Kong is such a unique bubble compared to honestly everywhere else where um, they they feel like they have this luxury because they have these these restrictions in place in terms of travel. And so they are able to kind of, if you just shut yourself off from everywhere else, you could mostly probably just live here. It's just only if you try to want to leave or do anything else normally, you realize like, oh, wait, there is a pandemic and, you know, it's serious. And, you know, but I just think the fact that they're not worried that their life could be taken from it. I'm so grateful that they follow, you know, so many procedures. But I think it's also led to this hesitancy that's very unique, I think, in the sense that they just they have this luxury to be like, no, maybe later. Um, John, there's a lot on the table here. We've been talking about international politics and COVID and talking about transborder issues and then just been talking about vaccine diplomacy. Anything here you want to comment on? Yeah, I just want to say a, a couple words on just the, the politics of, of global vaccination. I mean, um, I mean, I, I'm curious about the the um, sort of public opinion on uh, on um, you know uh, patent waivers and and trips agreements and, and things like that. But I do think you know there is a changing tide in terms of people's frustration with with big pharma. And just the obscene profits um, that uh, you know executives and um, and and companies are making, and I think you know pandemic profiteering, uh, you know, ought to be something that that um, is talked about more widely, and and one would imagine that it, it could have a, quite a powerful political effect on on public opinion. I mean, um, at, at the end of the day, I, I think that uh, you know this w- is a bit of a manufactured crisis. Um, uh, you know, Biden, at, from the very beginning of his presidency, was told by activists and global health leaders that he needed to very quickly take control over scaling vaccine uh, production and supply. Um, but he and, and the White House have, to a large extent, sort of handed the reins to Moderna and Pfizer and, and the others, um, asking for voluntary contributions to COVAX. And, you know, what's been the result? I mean, um, you know, way, way too few uh, doses in the world, um, very, very high prices that wealthy countries are able to negotiate and, and pay uh, to these companies. And you have Moderna just in Massachusetts, you know, Moderna is based right here in Cambridge, um, has minted, I think, five or six new billionaires in in Massachusetts um, just this year. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, if you frame things in those ways to the public, I think people, you know, will will realize just how obscene this is. I mean, Stefan Bonsell, the CEO of Moderna, this year has pocketed, pocketed um, upwards of $12 billion dollars. Um, uh, in uh, uh, you know just the 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 price of of his um, uh, his stocks uh, his, his stock value um, in in Moderna um, and this is at the same time that less than two percent of people in low and middle income countries have access to highly effective vaccines. Now that you know doesn't um, that's you know people are getting vaccinated with the Sino uh, Sinopharm and, and Sinovac. Um, vaccines, but those are far less effective than the mRNA vaccines. Um, and so, you know, I think we're in a real crisis. Um, we were just on a call, actually, there was a really fascinating panel uh, with David Kessler of the White House. He's the in charge of global vaccine issues um, uh, with the White House, uh, along with um, yeah, folks from the the um, Law and Political uh, Economy Project at Yale Law School. And, you know, activists were really 
pushing David Kessler on um, on how the White House is going to, in the medium term, scale up uh, production of mRNA vaccines. And he had very, very little to offer in terms of how the White House was going to use its power to compel um, compel Moderna in particular, but also uh, uh, Pfizer and, and the others to, to, to scale manufacturing. And um, I think that there's, you know, we need to take a page out of the ACT UP playbook. There's no way, I mean, the, the White House isn't going to, to, to push any harder unless we make them. Uh, and I think um, last week, uh, activists and I um, staged a demonstration uh, in front of Stefan Bonsell's home um, in, in, on Beacon Hill in, in Boston, um, uh, demanding that they take action uh, that was uh, paired with an action in front of Ron Klain, the chief of staff to Biden's uh, home in Maryland. Uh, we need more of that. Um, uh, they need to feel the heat on these issues if, um, I think, if they're going to actually take action. So I think we need to, you know, learn from that history, learn from the AIDS activists of the 80s and 90s, um, and stand up and, and fight back. John, let me stay with you on that for a second, because I know that, you know, Right to Health is, as you talked earlier about, um, channeling the power of narrative of individual stories here seems, of course, a, a a tried and true um, path of, of action, uh, but also as a historian here, I'm thinking, you know, we just need a lot more of that anyway. We need just a lot of people talking about COVID and talk about their own experiences of COVID. But the scale, I worry about the scale issues here because you ask some of the United States to be politically concerned about, let's see, vaccine, say vaccine access um, in sub-Saharan Africa. How do you translate that? What, how, what narratives are going to work there? I mean, I guess I'm asking you, you know, a little bit of tradecraft around framing these problems in, in terms of, of action. And maybe it's a callback to the Senate bill that you were talking about earlier. I mean, does that mean telling those stories and then talking about the pharmaceutical companies and these instant billionaires and then saying there's something you can do about this and here's what it is, support this bill? Or, or does that action... I, I guess I'm trying to understand from an activist perspective, what what are you calling for? Yeah, I mean, I think, so we're calling for a variety of things and it depends on the audience who, who we're speaking to. I mean, I think the, we start every event with um, someone sharing their story of self, their personal narrative. Um, I uh, was trained in community organizing by Marshall Gans, who's a community organizing um, teacher and longtime organizer at the Kennedy School of Government. Um, and, you know, public narrative um, is a, a skill, a leadership skill that people can learn, in fact, must learn if they're going to call people to sort of public leadership and public activism. And so we, we teach um, people us public narrative and story of self. Um, and, and the, what we, the way story of self sort of works, it's, it's about um, people sharing, uh, you know, a challenge that they've faced, but not just a challenge, you know, I lost my, my, my mother or I lost a fam another family member, but it's, uh, about the, um, the choice, um, that people make in confronting that challenge, actually hearing from people who have experienced loss, um, about their courage, their resolve, their decision to turn that loss into activism, I think can be very inspiring and can motivate people who might see these things as very abstract or distant 
in in new ways that they can resonate with and um, and can be deeply motivational for for action. Um, but then I think you know to to your previous point, I do think it it's helpful to have a villain. And at the end of the day, in my opinion, we we have some sort of um, sort of cartoonish villains um, yeah. uh, uh, that um, we can can point to that, that 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 these are bad faith actors and and also you know. Uh, Biden has an opportunity to to sort of make different policy decisions than he has. And there is a pathway, um, at least on the vaccine um, front, um, to open up uh, sort of the, the manufacturing floodgates um, if he chose to use the Defense Production Act or other sort of executive powers to compel um, sharing of technology. But uh, but yeah, it's it's multifaceted. It's complicated. Keeping people's attention is always hard. But stories, I think, are are often at the, the key to doing it. Thank you for that. And I think it's just a, to me, underlines the importance always in this to keep an eye on structures that it's, you know, I myself get frustrated, individual people, and even in my family won't get vaccinated. You know, we all have these stories and family and people we know. Um, and, and so that has to play, but we have to be attentive to that. But also, I mean, the structures of what's happening in the pharmaceutical industry around this, like that, that's where the discussion should be. I mean, I, I think these and that, and that's often my critique of the sort of resilience uh, argument overall is that we're, we're, we focus on individual choices. And, and of course, that's important. But, you know, this is a public health emergency. We're talking about big structural issues here with deep histories. And if part of our economy is structured to do something seemingly technologically miraculous and deliver vaccine, and it's also structured to make sure that some people in the world can't get it, that's a problem. And that's a that's a problem with the solution. Um, so thank you for I'm glad that you went you know into detail on that. I thought we would go long today, and we have because this has been a tremendous discussion. We need to move towards a a conclusion, but I want to ask a kind of a researcher's question and give you each a chance to answer as we conclude uh, in COVID calls today. And Lucia, I'm going to ask you first because um, you had shared with us um, one of the projects you're working on: virtual trust building confidence at a distance. I'm always interested to hear how researchers are coping in the pandemic. Um, maybe the onslaught of new questions and how you just keep the research agenda straight, the problem of funding in the time of the pandemic, or for those who are doing ethnography um, or ethnographically situated work, like you are, Lucia, um, reorienting your methods to uh, to distance. Can you talk to us about that? And then I'm going to give you, Renu and John, a chance to talk about how your methods have changed during the pandemic, and then we'll wrap up. Of course. Yes, thank you. It's it's always important to think about how the, the research we're producing and the ways that we're seeing these problems um, are, are being researched virtually in a lot of ways. Um, and that is obviously going to lead us to different conclusions, perhaps, than, than we could have reached um, with more traditional research methods. So in, in the piece that I shared, um, I'm sort of, it's, it's a reflection piece on what it means to um, interview someone remotely. And so one of the biggest pieces of, of being able to do ethnography and being able to interview is having trust with someone. And usually that trust is built up over time. So you attend community events and you get to know people um, and, and those people come to trust you and they recommend you to other folks. And, and this is our classic snowball sampling technique, right? Um, and so when all of a sudden we are in our homes 
uh, and we're unable to build this trust in ways that we've done in the past, um, it's, it's hard and it leads to different types of research. And ultimately, I was not able to sustain virtual interviews. And I switched towards analyzing uh, newspaper articles and sort of qual doing qualitative coding and kind of drawing conclusions that way. But um, what this piece kind of is reflecting on is one small sort of silver lining that I think we get um, when we're all of a sudden in our homes and we're sharing our homes with people and not just the spaces where we live, but the people that pass in and out of the backgrounds. Um, and so there's this one, there was this one particular day I was doing an interview and I was, I was home, I was visiting my family and my mom passed by in the background of, of one of my interviews. Um, and it was just sort of this instant moment. I was talking with a, a healthcare worker in Costa Rica. And so we were, we were really focused on kind of her day to day and what her routine was caring for people. And she was giving me these mechanical answers and she saw my mom and she just lit up. And they they started talking, um, and it was it was really sweet. And it was kind of this moment where, okay, we are so far away from each other physically, um, but but you see me now, and I see you. Um, and the conversation after that was was so much different. Um, it was it was intimate and it was special, and um, we got to talk about some really important things. So bring mom to the field. Um, I think she would have a great time in the field. I do. <laughs> I want to make sure people know. And so that to check out this piece also, I'm just putting the link up here um, related to this uh, issue of um, research at a distance and ethnography at a, at a distance. And this is, comes out of uh, just, I'm putting this link up for people um, on StreamYard so they can find this work and you're writing about it, Lucia. Thank you for sharing that. That's a great, that's a great example. Um, Renu, anything you wanted to add about how you've adapted your methods during this time? Uh, Have you yeah. also brought your mom to the, to Zoom class? I don't know, nobody's going to top that, I guess. So that's pretty great. I know, story. yeah. No, <laughs> I would love to, but I, I cannot make someone go through it with like 21 days. <laughs> my research <laughs> <So>. high tax <laughs> yeah yeah um but no i mean it's really hard to top that i i mean i would say um it's i think i would just reflect more generally and say that you know it is very stressful and in a way like i was the person who didn't get a graduation actually and you know all of that uh, all those big shifts in my life um also got married during COVID. So all of those things just happened. And so that was very different for me. But thankfully with fieldwork, I think I was just at a phase where I had so much data that I could take a step back and work with it. Um, so that's something that I've actually learned a lot more from from all of you that have found that, you know, your fieldwork's plans have changed and, and everything's been shifted. And, um, you know, I think going forward, what I've done is, is take on the skills that I know I'm good at that I can do remotely. And just, I keep waiting to go back to interviews and, and all, you know, the in-person, um, because elite interviews for me, you know, those aren't going to usually come through as, as much, um, on these zoom calls, you know, I'm not going to convince some 
politician to pop on his computer or her computer for me necessarily. Um, and so, yeah, I, I find inspiration in what you all have done as well. And, um, you know, I would just say that for any researchers watching this, there's so much more in your repertoire that you probably don't realize. And maybe this will just think of it as an opportunity to, to find those things that you're good at that maybe you wouldn't have thought to use. And you'll go back to everything else. You know, we will go back to that. But, um, I, you know, I'm trying to take it as an opportunity to take on new things um, that, you know, hopefully can just make us better researchers going forward. John, I'm going to give you the final word on this. And it was a question I wanted to come to earlier anyway about how young career researchers are balancing their social commitments and their research. There's only so many hours in the day. And I alluded to this at the beginning. I'm not quite sure how you're all managing these many commitments that you have. But let me, you know, anything that, that you just wanted to react to there and, and this issue around how you've adapted your your scholarly methods in this time. Yeah, um, I think it's, it's um, you know, probably not as gracefully, you know, as, as I'd like. I think, you know, it, it yeah, it's been hard. It's been emotional, um, discouraging. So my work is, uh, I didn't speak too much about it, but it's a comparative project of public health demonstration projects and looking at sort of the material social infrastructures that produce different kinds of public health scientific sort of epistemologies in in, in the one in the global north and one in the global south um, a program in in Finland that's been going for the set, uh, since the 1970s and um, a program much more recent in in Sierra Leone I was very fortunate to be able to go to Sierra Leone before the pandemic and spent um, a couple of months, uh, you know, doing, you know, participant observation, but also interviews. Um, and so that was really, really important. Uh, I wasn't able to go to Finland. I had, had hoped to. Um, but yeah, the adaptation has really just been Zoom interviews. Um, I think, you know, uh, I found that Zoom interviews, you know, can be quite effective. Um, you know, you can really make some good connections. And and in certain ways, it, it, it lowers a certain barrier. Everyone was stuck at home. People were doing um, Zoom meetings anyway. Um, I, I think it actually gave a certain degree of access to, to people that might might have been actually quite a bit harder to, to get interviews with. Um, so I was able to do a lot of interviews with folks in Finland, and, and I was able to re-catch up with some of my um, interlocutors in uh, in Sierra Leone, and I, I think that was that was effective. Um, but balancing has been hard. I mean, I, I think I've gone through periods of, of burnout and um, sort of exhaustion where I just had to kind of put things away. Um, I, I'm lucky to have a, a partner who, um, you know, we've been able to get away um, time to time and and sort of um, step away from these very heavy topics and just the the churn of news and that's been been welcome you know helped me i think keep my head on straight but yeah it's i think you know it's a hard time to be in grad school um you know solidarity to all my other grad student colleagues and and folks who are trying to get through grad school in this moment which is a you know there are lots of hard things um, but this is definitely one of them just a reminder, you've been listening to COVID Calls, and you can usually catch COVID Calls live weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. I want to also um, thank Summer Marion, who, uh, who was uh, instrumental in bringing um, these guests together uh, today. And the power of social media for good on Twitter is that it is an active um, community of researchers in the disaster research space. And um, there is a lot of solidarity there. And I want to, I don't think I praise that enough. And I want to, um, 
thank Summer Marion for connection, connecting here. And I want to thank my guests, uh, Lucia Vitali, Renu Singh, and John Schaefer for bringing a Researchers Roundtable alive today. Just a great conversation. Best of luck to each of you in your work and in your activism. And um, I hope we get a chance to talk again. Thank you all. Thank you very much, Scott. It's been great. Thank you. Thanks so much. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls.